Another episode of the Behind the You podcast. We're talking hoops with the guy I used to travel around the country with a little bit, and Joe Z. And we're talking to Coach Larinaga. Coach, thank you. I hope we have enough time to tell your story. You got, you have a lot to talk about. But more importantly, it's good to see you. And it's really, I am so glad you decided to do this with us. Well, Josh, it's my pleasure. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about Miami basketball, the team we have to compete this year in the ACC but also hopefully some history of our basketball program and how it's developed uh, since my staff and I got here in 2011. No problem. And by the way, we're going to poke and prod a little bit about you as well and your history and your rise through the ranks. So be ready for that. So here's, here's where I want to start. Have you always been Coach L? I would say since I became a head coach, yes. But when I was an assistant, the players at Virginia called me Coach Lack, like L.A., and uh, when I got to Bowling Green, that, that was shortened to Coach L. So this is something, you know, I, had, I think I had the pleasure of doing five years with you guys, I think, with Joe and traveling around and being around the team. And this was something I was always curious about, never had a chance to ask it until now, which is 11 years at Bowling Green, 14 at George Mason before you got to Miami. Why did you stay at both places so long in a profession where that's really kind of not the norm? I'm not a guy that looks for jobs. The opportunity to become a head coach at Bowling Green State University was a great opportunity for me. And I was so appreciative that they signed me to a long-term contract right away. One year. <laughs> I had a one-year contract at Bowling Green when I arrived there in 1986. And my children, Josh, were youngsters. They were 10 and, and 5 years old. And my wife and I have always made uh, our family the number one priority. And we wanted our children to have stability in their life. So I never had any intentions of looking for other jobs or planning to leave until the boys were really grown. And then at the end of my first year, I got a call from Frankie McLaughlin, the athletic director at Fordham University in New York City. My mother grew up in that neighborhood. My older brother went to Fordham and Frankie McLaughlin was a friend of mine. We played against each other in high school and he offered me the head coaching there in a five-year contract. And I thought to myself, wow, come back to New York City. But the athletic director at Bowling Green, he did the same. He offered me a five-year contract to stay. And my wife and I decided that what was best for our family was to stay at Bowling Green and put down roots and try to help our two sons, Jay, who was 10, and John, who was five, and help them get through high school between the two of them. That would be about 10 or 11 years. That was really part of the plan because that syncs up, right? The, your end of the Bowling Green kind of coincides with them either moving on or almost being at the finish line of high school. And, and that was because uh, my son Jay played for me at Bowling Green. He was a senior that year. He graduated and went on to play professional basketball in Europe for 12 years. My son John was going into his senior year, but when the George Mason job opened up, my son, John, knew that the best high school basketball in the country was being played in the Washington, D.C. area. So if my wife and I decided to move to uh, George Mason, John would have the option of either staying and playing at his high school, St. John's of Toledo, or come to the D.C. area and play in a, a much more competitive league. So we decided to take George Mason's offer. And my son, John, went and played for a legendary coach, a guy named Stu Vetter. He was 
Kevin Durant's high school coach, and my son John's high school team went 25-0 and and won the national championship, beating Oak Hill Academy in the Dean Dome. They played on the University of North Carolina campus in the Dean E. Smith Center, and my son John made the game-winning layup and free throw to put the game out of reach. So for him, it was a great move, and then he joined my program at George Mason University. He redshirted his freshman year and then had an outstanding career. So for both boys, it worked out very, very well. And for my wife and I, it was great. So did you like coaching your boys? I enjoyed it because they were such good players. I don't think they enjoyed it that much. In fact, I'll tell you, I'll tell you two funny stories. One about Jay. Jay was a great player at Bowling Green, one of the leading three-point shooters in the school's history. He started almost from day one. He was a top 100 recruit. He had schools like Virginia and Marquette recruiting him, but he decided to stay at home and play for dad. And I asked him why he was making that decision. And he said, because I've heard all the recruiting conversations you've had with your prospects. And the one thing you always emphasize was choose a coach you really can trust because he's going to have your basketball career in his hands. And he said, who could I trust more than you, dad? I like that answer, so he came in and played for us at Bowling Green. Then in his senior year, he got mononucleosis. And so I didn't play him as much as I'm sure he felt he deserved. And in one game against the University of Toledo, our arch rival, I took him out early when he missed a couple of shots and looked a little sluggish. And I put in a young man named Tony Reed who caught fire. So I just stuck with Tony the rest of the game. Jay played maybe 10 or 12 minutes instead of his normal, like, 28 or 30. And we ended up winning the game by, like, 16 points. And after the game was over, Jay came into my office to rip me. And so I understood that, you know, he's a competitor, he wants to play. But I got home and I told my wife, said, you can't believe this. Jay was really mad at me for not playing him as much. And she said, don't even talk to me. You sat him on the bench the whole second half. (laughs) (laughs) And then my... My son, John, when we got to George Mason, and I know this is true, especially for my own sons, I didn't like if they made a mistake, things I thought they they should know, or I knew they knew, but I wanted to remind them that was a mistake. And so in John's sophomore year, he was practicing very hard and very well, but I was really in his head. And after practice, he came into my office and said to me, hey, dad, I got to ask you a question. I said, yeah, sure. What? He said, do you want me to play really well? I said, Yeah, of course. What kind of question is that? He said, well, then, Dad, quit coaching me. I can't stop. I'm I'm thinking about you the whole time, and I can't play the game. And you know what? It's a great message for all coaches. In order to let your players be themselves, you can't be in their ear all the time. You can't make corrections all the time. In fact, my very good friend, Dr. Bob Rotella, a sports psychologist, really the Michael Jordan of sports psychology, always tells me during the game, don't try to make corrections, clap for mistakes. Be sure you're building the player's self-esteem and confidence. Because if they make a mistake and they start worrying about it, they're going to be playing in the past and not in the present. Good advice. I'm going to use, I'm gonna have to use that with my son. I just had a chat with him today. He's 11 years old, playing football. And I had that same exact conversation with him, and I told him that I had to. Uh, I apologized and told him I needed to take a step back for those very reasons. All right, so... How does Miami come to be? Well, that's very simple. You know, chronological order is very important. I believe in numbers and everything's a number. 
So uh, we had just finished the most successful season in terms of winning percentage in George Mason history. And we had just finished doing something that no CAA team had ever done. Now, listen to what it was. The CAA is the Colonial Athletic Association. It's a one-bid league. And the team that made the tournament was always wearing the dark uniform, meaning it was the lower seed. Our George Mason team wore white uniforms in the first round and played the national powerhouse Villanova Wildcats. So Villanova, very highly regarded. We matched up with them and we beat them in Cleveland, Ohio. Played a great game. It was a, a two-point game and we made a shot to win it. The next game we played the number one seed, Ohio State. And we just weren't big enough or strong enough to beat them. And our best player had gotten food poisoning, Luke Hancock. So he missed the game entirely. So the game ends and my staff and I are on the road recruiting. When I get a phone call from my president at George Mason University, who in fact was my best friend during my 14 years there. And he said to me, I'm calling you to let, let you know there's going to be a press conference. I'm going to announce my retirement. And as soon as I got off the phone with him, I told my wife, man, a lot of things are going to change at, at George Mason especially since President Alan Merton was leaving and he was my biggest fan. So what ended up happening is at that same time, Frank Haith left to go to become the head coach of Missouri. So I picked up the phone and called one of my really good buddies from the Michael Jordan Fantasy Camp, a camp out in Las Vegas, two brothers, Jose and Jorge Mas, usually successful businessmen, very, very well-known Cuban-Americans, here in the Miami community. And they happened to know that my grandfather was from Cuba. So I reached out to them and said, hey, I'd, I'd be very interested in the University of Miami. And Jose, this is a quote for him. Well, I think they're gonna hire Frank Martin because he had been a very successful coach at Kansas State and he's from Miami. And so that, that ended it. Uh, a week later, Jose calls me and said, hey, Coach L, would you still be interested in Miami? And I said, of course. And he said, well, I think we can get you an interview. And then after that, it's going to be up to you. And so he and Steve Marin, again, a, a very successful local businessman, reached out to Joe Ariola, again, a former mayor of Coral Gables. And they went to see President Donna Shalala to see if they could get me an interview. And two days later, I interviewed with Paul Damari, one of the great benefactors of the University of Miami, athletic program, Joe Natoli, the senior vice president for Donna Shalala, and Tony Hernandez, who at the time was the interim AD. And afterwards, I thought it went really well. I thought I had a heck of a shot. And then the next day, they hired Sean Eichhorst as the new AD. And he announced that he was taking over the search and he was going to start from scratch. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not getting that. And then a week went by and, and Sean called me and interviewed me over the phone. I never came to campus. I never met Sean Eichhorst in person. We talked for one hour and then he offered me the job. And that's how I ended up coming to the University of Miami. Wow. So was it a no-brainer? Josh, you probably don't know this, but you may have heard me speak about my philosophy. I have three words that I've lived by since becoming a head coach. It took me a long time to get to just three words, and each of them has an explanation. But the three words are attitude, commitment, and class. Attitude, I tell my players all the time, 
You have to have a positive attitude towards everything you do. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Commitment, you have to make a total and unconditional commitment to being the best that you can be in everything you do, whether it be in the classroom or on the court or in the community. And class, you have to always behave in a first-class manner. You got to take great pride in yourself and in our program and be a role model on the court and in the community. Again, I'm going to repeat, attitude, commitment, and class. You know what acronym is that is? ACC. That was my dream. I was an assistant coach at the University of Virginia for seven years. Absolutely loved the ACC. And that had always been my ultimate goal. I wanted to be a head coach in the Atlantic Coast Conference. And as a result, even though I'd been offered other jobs throughout the years, I waited for a perfect opportunity. And when Miami presented itself, I knew that was the job for me. Speaking of attitude, commitment, and class, I was, was going to come up a little bit later in the podcast, but your longtime assistant, Eric Conkle, had his offices redone at Louisiana Tech, and I was looking at him on Twitter today, and on the wall, one of the things says, attitude, commitment, class. So you're passing the torch as well. Yeah, Eric, Eric Conkle was with me on two different occasions. The first was at George Mason. And I stole him away from a good friend of mine, Buzz Peterson, who was the head coach of Tennessee. And when Eric came in, he was very different than any coach I'd had. Eric has supreme skills with technology. And I was very fascinated by that. I had had two assistants, Bill Courtney and Mike Gillian, who were good with the technology, but Eric kind of took it to another level. And so when he came in, I really relied on his experience in technology, his natural intelligence, his creative mind. We did a lot of great things together. And one of the things I admire about Eric, he was so hardworking and loyal to me and our program. So when he became the head coach of Louisiana Tech, where last season they won over 20 games, I think like won 24 games, went to the NIT semifinals, and he was named the Conference USA Coach of the Year. He's done a fantastic job. But he's kind of adopted my philosophy and tweaked it to his own skills. And so he sent me those pictures, Josh, just like you saw online. Attitude, commitment, and class is also his philosophy. But he, he also has his own unique way of doing things. Speaking of technology, and I did a lot of research for this coach, even though I know I've been around you still, there's a lot to dive into. Was he the one that brought you Synergy Sports? Yes. Well, let me correct that. Synergy was just coming around, I believe, in 1999. And I went to the PIT, the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament, to watch two of my George Mason players play. While I was there, I sat in the stands with all these NBA guys. One of them is a longtime friend of mine and an assistant coach for Doc Rivers. His name is Dave Wohl, W-O-H-L. Yes, that's the Miami roots. Miami Heat fans should remember him because he was a part of the inaugural years of the Miami Heat franchise. Well, Dave and I go back to college. Dave played at the University of Pennsylvania when I was at Providence, and we matched up during the summers and banged heads together. So I sat with Dave watching these games, and he says to me, isn't synergy great? And my response was, yeah, people work well together. He said, no, I'm talking about Synergy Technologies. And I said, I never heard of it. I'm not a tech guy. And he said, no, you've got to get it. So he explained to me what it was. And for the fans who, who don't know, 
It basically records every game and statistically analyzes the game for you, breaking down how many threes you made, where the threes came from, every statistical category you can get from Synergy. So I went back and I told my staff about it. Eric was on the staff. I asked him to research who the guy was that was in charge of this thing. And I called the owner of Synergy. I can't recall his name right now. And I asked him how much it would cost. And it was way out of our budget. So I said to him, look, if I get you 10 of my friends to subscribe to Synergy, will you give it to us for free? And he said, if you get me 10 guys, you got a lifetime subscription. So I got him 10 guys and we got it for free. And then Eric was able to use all that. The interesting thing about Eric Conkle's skills was when he left George Mason, very interestingly for his wife's career, she's a physical therapist and she needed to go back and get her master's degree, no, a doctorate degree from the University of Minnesota. So Eric left and the people at Synergy, I don't think that's the name of the company. I can't think of the name of the company. They hired him. And so while he was in Minnesota as a volunteer uh, assistant at the high school level, he was working for that Synergy company. And I can't think of the name. So Eric's technical skills are really special. And I assume you still use it today, right? The lifetime contract came with you. Everybody uses Synergy. Everybody. Let's go back to the attitude, commitment class, ACC, dream job. You're at the U. What was your vision for creating a winning program here in this league? When you got here, you said to your staff, all right, here's the plan. What was the plan? Okay, well, first of all, the staff had been with me at George Mason. Let me interject for one second. How important for any staff, any head coach, how important was it for you to bring your staff with you? Team chemistry, whether it's on your staff or on the court with your players, is hugely important. Having continuity is hugely important. And I know that early in my coaching career, I always told my assistants, if you're interested in a job, you know, and you want to move on, don't hesitate to ask for my help. I will never hold you back. Well, I had to eat those words for 11 years at Bowling Green. Because I immediately lost my first two assistants, Brian Ellerby and Jeff Schneider moved on to better jobs. Then Ricky Stokes moved on to Wake Forest and Steve Murfell became the head coach of Hampton and Mark Ivoroni went to the NBA. Stan Heath got the assistant coaching job at Michigan State. I was losing assistants every year or two. And I really struggled with that because we didn't have the continuity that you really need to have your players understand communication. What was happening is I'd hire a new coach and he'd have his own terminology. I'd have to teach him our terminology first. And then he'd still forget about our terminology and go back to what he learned at some other school. It's just very, very natural. So continuity is very, very important. Loyalty is very, very important. And being able to jumpstart our basketball program at Miami with guys who had already worked for me. Michael Uger played for me for four years. And then he was with me at George Mason. So he knew Coach L and how I like things done. So it was an easy transition for Mike and his family. Eric Conkle had been with me and then left and then came back. It was easy for him to make the transition. And Chris Caputo has only worked for one head coach in his coaching career, he's been with me for 20 years. We played for the same high school coach. So our, our connection goes way, way back. So having those three guys 
of understanding attitude, commitment, and class, the way we're going to recruit. And it's very, very simple the way we recruit. We look for the best student athlete that fit our needs. So if we need a big guy, we got to go get a big guy. If we need a guard, need a point guard. So when we first arrived at the University of Miami, we needed a point guard. We had a lot of players who were interested in signing with us. And we turned them all down, waiting for that perfect guy to show up. And it did. Shane Larkin. We had recruited Shane for George Mason. He chose DePaul. But then when my staff and I got to Miami, Shane called us. We didn't have to call him. He got a release from DePaul, called us, and joined us that first year. And what a huge impact he had on our team and the program. So I, I, I was just, I don't know if I'm talking too much. And not no, you're good. I, it's just a, this is you. This is about you, not me. People want to hear from you. I still want to know more. Your staff gets together. You guys are sitting, when you first get down here, you say, how do we make this work? How are we going to build this program up? What, what were those conversations like? Okay, so the very first thing is, if you look at my history as a head coach, there are certain geographical areas we've done very well in. When I was at Bowling Green, we basically recruited two areas, Ohio and New York. I lived in Ohio. Our players were coming from Ohio. And I grew up in New York City. I had a lot of friends in New York. So we recruited New York. So those two areas. We also branched out every once in a while. We go to Washington, D.C. Because as I said earlier, it's such a stronghold of talent. When we got to George Mason, I told the coaches, we do not have to recruit outside of the DMV. For our fans who don't know what the DMV is, that's the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. And our final four team, our five starters, were from within an hour of our campus. Eight of our players were from the DMV. So we targeted that area, made it a priority. When we got to Miami, we did the same thing with what we call the state of Miami, meaning from Miami up 95 to Jacksonville, over Route 4, through Orlando to, to the Tampa area, and then down 75, coming back to Miami. We really focused on that. So who was our first recruit? Shane Larkin. Who was our second recruit? Tanya Jakiri, who started for us, was on our championship team, and was an all-conference big man. We haven't been able to solidify that every year for whatever circumstances, but we were able to get Angel Rodriguez. We were able to get in a transfer, but still he's from Puerto Rico, but grew up here and played his high school ball in Miami. A Kamari Murphy, who grew up in Brooklyn, but went to IMG and was very familiar with Miami, transferred from Oklahoma State. We recruited a DeAndre Burnett, recruited Zach Johnson, who transferred in from Florida Gulf Coast. We've always made the Florida prospects a very high priority. Unfortunately, some of the very best ones we've gone after, we missed. Joel Berry, Tony Bradley, both went to Carolina. Florida got a couple of guys we wanted. Florida State, Leonard Hamilton stole a couple of the guys that we wanted. So this state has got some really good programs and it was very, very challenging for us. How important then are those previous relationships you discussed, whether it's Ohio, New York, the DMV area, in terms of, because you've had success getting into the Northeast with kids coming to this program or those areas, and how attractive does Miami, I imagine when you take Miami to those areas, it becomes a pretty attractive sell. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting for the recruits and their parents because we're allowed to provide official visits, which means we pay for a weekend 
Nobody's turning down the visit to Miami. <laughs> hey, come see Coral Gables. Oh, man, go to the ocean, hang out at South Beach. No, no, we're in Coral Gables. You're going to go to a college campus. You're not going down to South Beach. But the, the funny thing is, everyone will, will come and visit, but they come with a different approach a lot of times. We have to be very, very careful. And my staff has done a great job of identifying kids like a Bruce Brown from Boston, at very, very highly recruited, comes down to Indiana or Miami, and we're able to get him. Alani Walker from Reading, Pennsylvania. He has Arizona, Syracuse, Villanova, Kentucky, and Miami. It was a long shot for us to get him, but because of our relationships, we were able to, to do that. And we hope that continues. Dewan Hernandez, you know, when we signed Dewan, he was a McDonald's All-American, a local product. Those are the kind of guys we got to get. What do you look for when you're recruiting a player? I know some of that's position-based, but how selective are you? Or what are the things that are a priority to you when it comes to scouting a player and also scouting the person? Well, I have grandsons. And I decided to start texting them about basketball because my three grandsons, James, whose dad is the assistant coach with the L.A. Clippers, and he goes to high school in L.A., and my two grandsons, my son John's children, they live in Washington, D.C. I've already told you how competitive that area is, and they're th going to be 13 soon and 11. I think I see where this is going. <laughs> we're, we're getting in there, the mental side of the game to that. So I'm going to read to you some of the, the, the things that I sent to them. There are 10 things that we look for in a recruit. I told my, my, my grandsons in D.C. are already being recruited for high school. I'm serious, Josh. They're being recruited for high school. They're being invited to summer camps. They're being invited to play with JV teams and pick up ball. That area is crazy. So here's what I said to them. The important characteristics for a basketball player. One, the ability to play hard, giving consistent effort every day, a true work ethic. Two, a basketball IQ, know the mental and emotional side of the game. The strong dominate the weak. The smart dominate the strong. You have to be mentally and emotionally tough. Three, skills for your position. So if you're a big guy, you need big man skills. Today, a big guy's got to be able to play like a guard, shoot the three and handle the rock. But if you're looking for a point guard, you really need to have someone who has played that position before and is like your quarterback. Four, you have to have athletic ability, speed, quickness, and jumping ability. Five, strength and conditioning. Six, competitiveness. You have to be a competitor because if you want to come to the ACC, you're going to face some of the toughest competitors in college basketball history. Seven, coachability. I'm hoping you'll be able to listen to me and my staff when we give you a, a suggestion. Eight, attitude. You got to have a positive attitude. Nine, you have to be team-oriented. And 10, height length for your position. So those are 10 characteristics. I sent them to my grandsons. My oldest grandson is a point guard, left-handed, kind of a Bobby Hurley type, maybe more like Isaiah Thomas from the Boston Celtics era, left-handed, quick, hard-nosed kid. And then the, the two grandsons from the DC area, their dad is 6'7", their mom is 5'10". I think they're both going to be like Duncan Robinson of the Miami. <laughs> Their dad has made sure that they're shooters. He's hired a shooting coach. So those guys are going to be launching threes throughout their careers. 
We're going to talk about the upcoming season, but we got to go down memory lane here at Miami. This your second year. So I guess 2012, 2013, that magical season. When did you know that team had a chance to be special? <laughs> I got I got myself in trouble with my wife. I told her before the year was going to start. And Donna Shalala was hosting our board of trustees in the Watsco Center. They had a meeting in the H100 room. I'd only been here a year, but I knew the ACC backward and forward. And I decided to go into the board of trustees meeting uninvited, poke my head in and tell them what a great year we're about to have. So I, I poked my head in it and President Shalala saw me. And she wondered, like, what the heck's he doing here? And she sent one of her assistants over. And I told her, I just want to say a few words to the board. So her assistant, I think it was Rebecca Fox, if I'm not mistaken, went back to Donna and she said, okay. So she invited me in, introduced me to the board. And I said, I just have a few words. I, you know, I know you're all very busy with University of Miami business, but I just want to let you know, this is going to be a very special year in basketball, maybe the best in school history. And we have a real chance to win the ACC and maybe even the national championship. And I left. I went home. I told my wife what, what I did. And she said, are you crazy? Oh, I did add this, though, Josh. I didn't say it. I think we have the chance to, to win the ACC and uh, national championship if we stay healthy. Because injuries change you. It, it doesn't matter whether it's the point guard that gets hurt or a quarterback in football. You know, everything changes the moment your leader goes down. And that year, we were surprisingly healthy the whole season. We only had one critical injury to Reggie Johnson, who broke his thumb out in Hawaii, and he was replaced by Julian Gamble, who ended up having a phenomenal senior year and helped us win the ACC championship. Had we not stayed healthy, there's no way we could have done it. And the reason I know that is because we had just beaten Illinois and we're headed to the Sweet 16. And here's what happened. Reggie Johnson tore up his knee in the Illinois game and was missing the trip. He had to have surgery that day. Duran Scott caught an elbow in the mouth in our last practice, went to the dentist, and had to have his jaw kind of wired shut where he couldn't open his mouth. And then Shane Larkin got food poisoning the night before the game. We played on Thursday. Shane had something bad to eat on Wednesday night. He spent the whole night sick to his stomach and had no energy the next day, and we lost to Marquette. My point being, as good as our bench was, they're not as good as the starters. They're good players. They're in new roles, and it just didn't, didn't work well for that night. But when you ask how good was our team, I knew before the season ever started, with the size and athletic ability we had up front, with the skill set that our guards had, Shane Larkin, Durant Scott, Trey McKinney-Jones, Ryan Brown, I knew we were the best team in the league before the season ever started. So for most people and or broadcasters, the Duke home game is the game that they remember. Maybe North Carolina, too. Is that your – you have probably a ton of memories, but, like, do you have a favorite memory from that season, or is it the season? Well, I have a lot of memories because I remember almost all the games, like when we lost the Florida Gulf Coast in game two that year. Probably wanted to walk back that statement from the board of trustees. No, I didn't. I, I thought it was the best thing that happened because it captured our players' attention. They were feeling, I, I would never use this term normally, overconfident, but they were. They were players who thought, oh, we're great. We're no, we got a lot of things we got to get better at. So that, that really helped us. The second thing was 
we opened up the season. I think we played Georgia Tech first. Then we went to Carolina, and we were behind at the half. And I'll never forget what I told the team at, at halftime. I told the guys, look, at, we're not playing the team on the front. We're playing the guys on the back of your jerseys. This is not Carolina. Awesome. Unbelievable. We're better than these guys. And you guys act like this is the Carolina team that we can't beat. It's not true. We're the better team. And you need to go out and play like we're the better team. And the guys looked at each other and like, yeah, coach is right. And my staff was on these guys. Come on, man. We got to play up to our capability. We went out. We took control of the second half and won the game. And I could tell in the locker room after the game that everything had changed. We won 14 straight games. That Duke game was the number one team in the country. And they were clearly the favorite. But can you remember that the line of students outside the Watsco Center lining up to get into the game an hour before tip-off? The crowd was electric. Dick Vitale was there. ESPN had made it the, the game of the week. And it was a Wednesday night. And on Tuesday, Kenny Kaji was having a terrible practice. And I told him, Kenny, just go sit on the sideline. And instead of sitting on the sideline, he walked off the court and went into the locker room. Gosh. When I looked over to put him back in, he was gone. I said, where the heck did Kenny go? He said, well, I think he quit the teams. He left. I said, come on. So we get ready to get started again, and Duran Scott's not there. I said, where's Duran? Oh, he went to the restroom. So we wait for Duran to come back, and he comes back in, and we start back, and all of a sudden, here comes Kenny. Kenny comes back, comes up to me and says, I'm really sorry for the way I behaved. Uh, I won't do it again. Put me back in. I put him in. He played like an All-American the rest of practice. So after practice, I asked what happened. And it turns out Duran Scott went into the locker room. Kenny had put on his street clothes and was leaving. And Duran Scott said, if you don't put your practice gear back on, go out there and listen to every word Coach L says and do the best you can. I'm going to kick your ever-living butt. And Kenny did exactly what Duran said. He came back out. I left out a few choice words that Durant may have used. I'm sure, I'm sure you did. They went out, and sure enough, the next night, we played a spectacular game. Kenny Kaji was uh, probably the player of the game if it wasn't Shane or Durant, and we won by 27 points, 90 to 73, I believe. It's 90 to 63. Oh, yeah, 90 to 63, you're right. How about at the end of that year? I think the team lost like three or four coming down the stretch. Was there any concern at that point? Well, we lost two out of three, not three out of four. Oh, sorry. Okay. We lost at Wake Forest, a game we should have won easily. Then we came home and played Georgia Tech, a game that we were up 10. But the strange thing had happened. We had balloons up in the rafters that night because if we won, we had clinched the regular season by ourselves. We were out of champs. And the security guard told Brian Gregory, the coach of Georgia Tech, Hey, when we win, get off the court because balloons are going to come down. Well, Brian told his team, and that fired them up like crazy. And I didn't know about that until I saw Brian uh, in the summertime. So we lost to Georgia Tech on a tip-in at the buzzer. And now we had to play Clemson in the last home game of the season. But it actually worked out very well, Josh, because it being a senior night was our senior game. And we had six seniors. We started... Duran Scott, Trey McKinney-Jones, Kenny Kaji at the three, Julian Gamble at the four, and uh, Reggie Johnson at the five. So can you imagine that was our starting lineup for a game where we have to win to win the championship? 
But the guys were ready. They played great. We beat Clemson. And then the crowd stayed afterwards for the celebration. We cut down the nets at both ends. The balloons fell. The crowd got onto the court. It was a sensational celebration. And it spoke volumes about all the excitement we had created. And it led to three straight sellout seasons. I don't know if you remember that, but the three years following that, we ended up not that next year, but 15, 16, 16, 17, 17, 18, we sold out. And all of it was because of the foundation that that team in 2013 laid for us. And then the ACC championship game, unbelievable. We played Carolina for the third time, one of the great shootouts in ACC history. And we ended up out shooting them from three and, and beating them for the third time. So I got to tell you, one of the great experiences I've ever had as a broadcaster, having served as the Josie's analyst for a few years, and I got to experience that run and going to the ACC tournament, going to the NCAA tournament, all of it. You mentioned the win against Clemson. So when the game's over, we have a wireless mic, and now I'm on the court, and I'm interviewing President Shalala, some of the players. But the thing I remembered most was the confetti's falling down, the students are on the court, the celebration, and I thought to myself, this is what the final four must feel like when you get to cut down the nets. It was the, it, and it was the same thing in Greensboro when we won. The joy, it was an amazing experience to just, as sort of an outsider, to participate in and, and experience that and get a feel for what, what you had done at George Mason and what you always aspired to do. It was an amazing feeling. Yeah, Josh, I would tell you, those experiences are each a little different. All of them are great. But when you do it, when you win a championship on your home court, you're doing it in front of your hometown fans, that is very, very special for them as well as for you, your staff, and your players. Because they're celebrating with their friends, the people that support them the most. When you win the conference tournament like we did in Greensboro, you know, half the fans are for Carolina. Probably three quarters of the fans are for Carolina. So they're not celebrating. They're angry. They're walking out uh, disappointed. So it's not quite the same. The excitement is the same, but you don't have all your fans there to share it with you. I do remember in that moment in Greensboro, Duran Scott, same situation. I'm on the court, microphone. He was so overcome with emotion, he, he just cried. He couldn't even speak. That's how special the moment was. It was great. And Duran is one of the special human beings. He cares so much about other people. I, that was one of the things he made so many sacrifices. Today, if you ask Duran Scott what his best position in college basketball was, he would tell you point guard. And yet, with Shane Larkin, he had to move over to the two-guard spot for us to be the best we could be. Not only was he willing to do it, he did it with the most positive attitude any player can have. And that's, that's special. Well, he was on this podcast. He was he was a bundle of joy. We walked down memory lane with him as well. And he's doing great things now, giving back with everything he's doing in the game. He is. He's in New York City, giving back to that community where he grew up. He was a great player at Rice High School. He and Kemba Walker were the backcourt. That's a pretty good backcourt. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's what it was like for him to play with Shane. Shane Larkin and Duran Scott, just like Kemba Walker and Duran Scott. So that 13 team built on a lot of older, experienced players, some key transfers. How would you compare the 16 team to the 13 team? How are they, how are they similar? How are they different? Well, I would say the similarities are at the 1-2-3. Uh, Shane Larkin, Durant Scott, and Trey McKinney-Jones compared to Angel Rodriguez, Shelly McClellan, and Davon Reed. Similar in size and, and abilities, skill set, and all just great competitors, all six of them. A little bit different in the front court. 
In the front court, we had so many big bodies on that 2013 team. Reggie Johnson weighed 300. Julian Gamble was a huge guy. Kenny Kaji, huge. Raphael Akabajuri. And that, you know what his nickname is now, right? The Nigerian Hurricane. He's a professional prize fighter. 6'10", 240, and he's a, a heavyweight. And then Eric Swope was about 6'6", 235. So we had a lot of bulk. And we were very, very strong physically inside. In the 2016 team, we had the three guards. And then we had Kamari Murphy and Tanya Jakiri. And Kamari was very, very athletic, could jump out of the gym. But he probably only weighed about 220. Tanya, on the other hand, he was up there by that time. He probably was about 235, 240. But our bench, our front court sub, was Anthony Lawrence, who was really a guard. He played the four, and then we'd move Murph over to the five. So we were not as big physically, but we did have a lot of skill. That sort of ushered in. You mentioned Bruce Brown and Lonnie Walker right earlier. So the success of that four-year, I guess about a four-year run, right? You ushered in guys that were, well, Lonnie was one and done. Bruce might have been, you know, a one and done guy. I think injuries might have gotten in the way with Bruce. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But how do you balance building your team with those kind of players versus even on this team, you have transfers. This year's crazy with fifth and sixth year guys. Would you go down that road again? Okay, so you're always trying to recruit the guys you think fit your program based on needs. When we recruited Bruce Brown, he was a perfect fit for us because he was multidimensional. He was a great defender, a great rebounder. He could play the one, the two, the three. He could guard almost anybody. And so when he came in as a freshman, I don't know if you remember this, Josh, we beat Carolina that year. He had 30. We beat Duke that year. He had 25. And he was a sensational freshman. But at the end of the year, although he could have put his name into the draft, his mentor, Leo Papil of the BABC AAU program, kind of suggested to him, maybe you need one more year of grooming. So Bruce returned. That also allowed Lonnie Walker to come in and join Bruce. And Lonnie came in with uh, Chris Likes, Sam Wardenberg, Dan Gak, and Lonnie all came in at the same time. So we had a very young but very athletic freshman class. And then they joined Jaquan Newton and Dewan Hernandez and Anthony Lawrence and Buka Zundu. That was a very talented and deep team. But the whole key to that team's success was Bruce Brown. Lonnie made some tremendous plays. He made four game-winning shots. But when Bruce Brown got hurt in his sophomore year, he broke his foot. We were without that key ingredient that you need a guy who can defend everybody. He was our leading rebounder. And how often have you heard me say you, you lose a key player uh, and it doesn't matter whether he's your point guard or your quarterback. It makes a huge difference to your team. Bruce was always our quarterback in the last 10 minutes of the game. And now he was not available to us. And that changed everything. Speaking of Bruce Brown, the guy you described for you is like the same exact guy he is in the NBA. Exactly. Bruce is a, a chameleon. He's the guy that uh, you can throw him in there at any position and he'll do great. You know, when you think about Bruce's position with the uh, Brooklyn Nets this year, he set a lot of ball screens like he was a big man. But when he rolled to the basket in the NBA, it's called a short roll. You, you're not just going to the basket. You're kind of lining up at the foul line after you screen. And James Harden and Kyrie Irving would get him the ball there. And then he would distribute like a point guard. 
And because he has that ability to find the open man, he'd make great decisions. And you got to give Steve Nash a lot of credit for putting him in that spot. All right, let's talk about this year's team. Let's talk about the Canes in 2021 and 22. Just looking over the roster today, a lot of older guys. What's kind of the outlook? Do you like having that kind of experience? I mean, I'm sure you do, but how does that help the mission? Well, we have seven returning players and seven newcomers. So we have the experience, the older guys, but we also have some youthful enthusiasm, which is a very nice blend. And they're all practicing very hard right now. The whole key for us this year will be staying healthy. I thought we were going to have a terrific team last year, and I believe we would have had our best players not gotten hurt. Chris Likes, our leading scorer, only played in two games. That was a killer. Sam Wardenberg, who was our leading rebounder and our best front court defender and our leading shot blocker from his uh, junior, um, whatever that year was, his junior year. <laughs> We don't go by names. We go by numbers. It's your six-year senior and a fourth-year sophomore. So in Sam's case, he broke his foot in October. We never had it for practice or games, preparation or anything. That makes it very difficult because the guy who's replacing him should be a sub, a backup. Now, all of a sudden, he's getting more minutes than we would have preferred. And then Rodney Miller, he was the starting five-man the year before as a junior. He tears up his knee in, like, game four, and we don't have him. Now we have no depth. We have our best scorer and the preseason all-conference first-teamer, Chris Likes, out for the year. So it made it very, very challenging. Hopefully we'll stay healthy this year. Because if you look at, if we put a veteran lineup on the floor, we could have Charlie Moore, sixth-year guy at the point, Isaiah Wong, an all-ACC all-conference performer last year, Cam McGusty, a sixth-year senior at the wing. We could have Jordan Miller, a fourth-year player, a transfer from George Mason, but he averaged, he was their leading scorer and rebounder, averaging like 17 and 8. And then Sam Wardenberg at the five, who can stretch the defense because he can shoot the three. So you have five guys, older guys, who really know how to play college basketball and have competed against the best. But what makes it so unique on the bench, you also have Anthony Walker, who uh, was a starter half the year last year. Rodney Miller, who was a starter the year before. Dan Gack, who has played every game last year as compared to his first few years where he was always injured. Harlan Beverly, who was a starter in many games last year. And then our three freshmen, uh, Benzie Joseph, Wooga Papla, and Ja'Kai Robinson. So if healthy, we're in good shape. Any of those key players goes down, and it's a whole different story. Philosophically, you've always talked about key, or you've mentioned it a, a bunch of times about injuries, right? That can determine your season. You've always been very analytical. We talked about synergy earlier. We didn't get in the Ken Palm yet, but can we talk about scheduling and how that helps you win? There are a number of categories in coaching that you have to pay very serious attention to if you want to make the NCAA tournament. So the first thing and most important is academics. Why? Well, you don't want to be anybody be academically ineligible. If they don't take care of their academics, if they don't do what students should do, then you lose. You can lose a player. The second is obviously recruiting, where you got to bring in good players to have a good team. But once you get your players here, once they're doing a good job in school, then you got to figure out what the schedule is going to look like in order for you to make the NCAA. So you have two different categories. The conference schedule, which you have no control over, and then the non-conference schedule, which everybody thinks you have total control over, which is definitely not true. When you look at your non-conference, 
you look at it in different categories. The first one is the ACC Big Ten Challenge. So we're going to play at Penn State this year. We're on the road. So I got to keep that in mind. Okay, we're going to play on the road this year in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. All right, we're going to play in what is called an exempt event, a tournament. This year, it's in Orlando. ESPN will be televising all the games. The teams in there are almost always very, very competitive, nationally ranked teams. This year, that, that field includes Kansas and Alabama. Those are two highly ranked teams before the season ever begins. So that's four games of our 10. Now, none of those are at home. So we got to figure out, well, how many home games should we play? And how many road games should we play? So one of the things we like to do is play some home games early in November so we can get accustomed to playing with each other and, and developing some team chemistry. So we normally play our first two games at home and then go on the road somewhere to play a road game and get used to that and then go to the tournament and then come back and play at home again so our hometown fans can see us play. And we want to have a balance in the schedule. So we want to play a certain number of games at home a certain number of games on the opponent's home court, and a certain number of games on a neutral site like the ACC tournament is. And you only have 10 games, so you better figure out the balance. So what would be best for us is to have five home, three on a neutral site, and two on the opponent's court. And that's your, your 10 non-conference games. And on a scale of one to 350, you can't play the all teams in the top 50, and you can't play hardly any of them in the bottom 100. You've got to play a balance of teams that are very, very competitive, and some hopefully that you can win comfortably. Coach, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. It was fun going down memory lane and uh, excited for the year coming up. Thanks for taking the time. I don't know when, but we are doing part two with Coach L because we have a lot more to tackle. Well, thank you, Josh. It's been my pleasure. And go Kings.